Welcome, everybody, to RUF. We have been doing a series on gospel-driven relationships. And um, this, is, this is kind of a, a different week in some ways. Hold on. This, this is a, a different sort of week because uh, I'm basically doing dating part number two. And uh, it's, it's one of those weeks where, you know, remember I said last week, if you look in the Bible, what does the Bible say about dating? Is dating biblical? The, the, of course, the first answer is no, because the Bible doesn't talk about dating. Um, so therefore, maybe it won't come as a surprise that I don't necessarily have like a verse that I'm going to be preaching on. Now, that's very unusual. This um, tonight, hopefully, would be some common sense experience, Christian principles, applied to the topic of dating, kind of a potpourri of various issues, and then some extended Q&A time as well, all right? I'm going to get some scriptures in and gospel in, but it's not like we have just a good, you know, here's a scripture and then we're going to go through it. And that's unusual for RUF because generally I want to preach from God's Word, but this is a little more topical tonight. So I just want to give you a heads up. And especially if this is your first time to RUF, know that this is very unusual um, from our normal mode here, right? But I think this is a topic that is of interest to most everybody. And there are just some things that it's, it's good to just kind of talk about and be able to be kind of wide ranging in the way we're going to talk about this topic. Um, so everybody got the two little outlines? Well, it's two pages. I know it's never two pages. Um, Part of that is because I could have spent like 30 minutes squeezing it onto two pages. And I was like, I just don't feel like doing that. I mean, for crying out loud, it's my anniversary today. Been married 14 years. So, yeah. I just didn't feel like I needed to do that. You know, so that extra bit. So you got two pages instead of one. Sorry. Um, And that'll be fine, I think. Um, Yes. Uh, you know, I, I asked her to marry me on my birthday so that I would never forget that day. <laughs> so I don't know, if you're like me and you tend to forget things, you might, you know, you take a tip. And yeah, I, 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 we got engaged on my birthday. It also was a great way for me to uh, propose to her, have us be dressed up and have her not suspect it. Um, but anyway, we can talk about that another time. But the... Um, but we got married on February 28th, and that also worked out well for me because it's a pretty easy day to remember, you know. Um, and I know that it's coming close when Valentine's, when I almost forget Valentine's. But there's lots of things in the culture that help you remember Valentine's. Nothing to help you with your anniversary except you. Um, anyway, my wife knows that I'm just kind of forgetful sometimes. One-track mind kind of person, yes. But we're going to go out and celebrate our anniversary tomorrow night, and that'll be, that'll be great. Um, okay. So, we're going to talk about dating some more. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that I said last night, kind of the, or last week. The two main principles, if I, just by quick review, is um, the Bible doesn't say anything about dating. But neither does it hold up courtship as like the biblical model. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about courtship tonight because I'm going to talk about the problem with most Christian books on dating. Uh, and so the courtship issue is going to come under uh, fire a little bit as part of that discussion. But the main thing I said is uh, the Bible doesn't talk about dating per se, but the thing you need to understand is that doesn't mean you can't do it. 
It means that there's freedom, uh, that the Bible doesn't say this is the only um, Christian way for two people to decide or even to be married, whether you know, they decide. Because in the Bible times, there were a lot of arranged marriages, um, but the, you know, the Bible doesn't lay down this is the only way this can happen. This actually is typical of a lot of issues um, that people don't necessarily understand this, but Christianity um, does not just sort of lay down rules for all kinds of things. Uh, as a matter of fact, we looked at a passage, or I alluded to a passage in Colossians 2, where um, Paul, the Apostle Paul, specifically says, look, um, don't submit to these rules, these human rules, do not taste, do not touch, do not handle, these things that have the appearance of wisdom with their harsh treatment of the body, but he says they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. In other words, what the Bible says is rules don't change your heart. And rules, especially if you make rules where God has not made rules, and what you end up doing is saying this is sin, even if the Bible doesn't say it's sin. And that's not a small deal, that's a big deal. Because you're usurping God's place, whether you do it for yourself or whether you do it for others. And so um, that's the first point, freedom. The second point is that I made last week, and it's worth reiterating as we talk about this tonight, is that all of the various principles that the Bible speaks to about how to care for people and to be in relationship, all of that stuff comes to bear on this relationship, right? So all the stuff we've talked about, forgiveness, idolatry, um, you know, all that stuff comes into to play here. But there are some particular biblical principles that are worth highlighting, and one of the biggest ones, I think, is where Jesus, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Because often what happens in sort of this in-between, you know, we're friends, there's like, kind of, you know, I saw that little video, right? You know, I really like you, and then you eventually, you know, I love you, and I want to marry you. Like, all along that sort of fuzzy gray area that is a lot of that in-between, uh, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, and now we're married. A lot of that in-between stuff, a lot of hurt and a lot of... Um, poor treatment of one another happens because of violating that principle of letting your yes be yes and your no be no. Because people often say things with their actions, with their bodies, with their um, time and how they spend it that they really aren't willing to make. And sort of with their words. So it's sort of like kind of playing around with, with a commitment, trying to communicate by your actions things that you really don't mean. Um, so let your yes be yes. To be thinking about, am I being consistent with what I'm saying? Like I'm saying that I don't want to date you, but yet I feel like you owe me. You have to be there when I call you, and you have to, you know, I have certain ownership over you, these sorts of things. A lot of, lot of, lot of mess happens because of that. Um, but as we talk about the real problem with most Christian books on dating, um, I'll say this, like a lot of times I used to be somewhat in the Christian music industry back in the day, and then in the music industry somewhat. And I was, you know, it's real easy to take pot shots at the Christian music industry and the problems that it has as a genre. But in, in reality, a lot of the problems are, um, and you may not know what I'm talking about, but I'm going to tell you in a minute. A lot of the problems really are the Christian world sort of writ large. For instance, um, you know, I guess you can see it here too, but I, I would always notice this one billboard if I drive from here to Memphis on I-40. Um, there was a particular Christian radio station whose um, kind of motto was safe for the whole family. 
Like that's the point of music, uh, is to, to, to sort of have a safe alternative to the mean, scary, secular world. Like, but that's not just a problem with Christian music, that's a problem with Christians. Like the, a lot of Christians sort of live that idea that if, I, if I'm a Christian, I don't want to be around anything that might be you know, thought-provoking or challenging or scary or upsetting to children. Um, so when I talk about the problems with Christian books on dating, these are actually problems with a lot of Christians' way of approaching every topic. So let's dig into it. The first is uh, what I would call a super spirituality. Now, Francis Schaeffer, who's passed away now, um, he, he coined that term as far as I know. It's this idea, you know, that basically, like, Everything is just so super spiritual, and you feel like God has to tell you moment by moment what you're supposed to do and lead you by your feelings and this and that. And it's sort of like is the idea that the more spiritual you are, the less you, it, well, sometimes it's, you could even think of it as sort of a replacement kind of theology. The idea that I no longer live, but Christ just lives instead of me. Now, that's a, a, an allusion to a verse in the book of Galatians, but it's often taken wrongly. Um, Paul says, you know, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then people stop right there. But if you go on to what, hear what the rest of he says, he says, and the life I live, I now live by faith. So if you think what he's saying is being a Christian means you just sort of get out of the way and let God just live through you and you're not a responsible person who has to make decisions and bear the consequences for those decisions, then you don't understand the Christian life. But it seems very spiritual to say that I just sort of let go and let God. It seems very spiritual to say, well, I don't really need to work on my sharp tongue because, you know, God, I just need to let God just kind of, you know, I just need to be an empty vessel and let God live through me. And you hear this in worship songs and you hear preachers and Christian books and Christian radio and all these kind of people use these sort of phrases where it almost seems like scandalous that you would stand up and say that's not really biblical. But so much of that stuff isn't. Isn't. Christianity is not about Christ replacing you and living in your place instead of you. It's about you becoming conformed to his image, but you're still you. And he made you different than he made me. And what you're going to look like without sin is different than what I'm going to look like without sin. And honestly, a big part of, of even moving towards marriage with somebody is saying, I want to be a part of God making this person glorious. And I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but I have, I have some kind of hints about some of the ways that I think this person can really become more glorious and more beautiful in God's sight. And I want to be a part of that. I feel implicated in that. I feel called to be part of that. And I can't imagine not being a part of that anymore. But it's not, the goal of, of Christianity is not a bunch of cookie cutter Christians who all think alike and speak alike and smell alike. That's not, right, I don't know. You know, there's probably, there probably are, well, there are Christian breath mints. So at least there's the idea that your breath could all smell alike. But there's probably Christian deodorant and Christian everything. It's ridiculous. If you ever go to the Christian Bookseller Association meetings, it will just turn your stomach. Um, if it doesn't, then you, you probably aren't really a Christian. Um, like, I'm, I, without, without a joke, like so much of that stuff just lies about the Christian life and is so far removed from the Bible. And, and, here, and here's why. It, it approaches 
uh, presents what's, what Dan Allender in his book, Bold Love. Dan Allender's a, a wonderful Christian counselor and writer. Molly's group is reading his book, The Cry of the Soul, right now. It's a great book about understanding your emotions and how God fits into them. But he talks in his book, Bold Love, about the simpleton approach to Christianity. There are a lot of Christians, um, and, and I understand, like, especially when you have kids, like you're looking for anybody to just tell you what to do. <laughs> Um, you should understand that about your parents. Being a parent is one of the most shame-based or potentially shame-inducing things you'll ever do in your life, okay? And especially when your, your kids get to be in college and they know everything. Um, so, you know, but all that to say, um, there are a lot of Christians that basically are looking for the Bible to find a particular verse to tell them everything they're supposed to do. They're, they're, they're looking to the Bible like it's a rule book, and, you know, one of the, the places where people do that the most is in the book of Proverbs. And the irony is there, there are two verses in the Proverbs that are deliberately put next to each other to prevent you from reading the Proverbs that way. But people still do it. There, uh, next to each other are these two, two verses. Answer a fool according to his folly. And right next to it, do not answer a fool according to his folly. So if your approach to reading the Bible or trying to figure out God's will for my life is just simply to just grab one verse and sort of say, ah, oh, there it is, that's what I'm supposed to do today. You come upon that, those two verses, and you're like, well, if you're confronted with a fool today, what are you going to do? Which one do you obey? And it's not coincidence that they're next to each other. It wasn't just you know, sort of sloppy editing and, you know, the, the word processor, the cut and paste, you know, sort of, you know, no. It's deliberately arranged that way so that you don't just take a simpleton approach, but instead you say, oh, if I'm confronted with a fool, I'm going to need wisdom to know how to apply God's word here. But the simpleton approach to the Christian life doesn't want to have to wrestle with all that the Bible says about a particular topic. You just want to find a quick little verse or a quick little Christian guru to tell you what you should do. And, and, and unfortunately, that's not what God promises, right? So many people want to have little rules that they think can guarantee a particular result. The way I would describe it is we want God to be the divine vending machine. Or we want God really to be the divine pharmacist. God is the divine healer. He gets to write the prescription. He gets to make the diagnosis. But so many people are just wanting him to fill the script that they themselves have written, right? And they think they know what they need. They just need him to sort of weigh in on what they should do um, every now and then. Th this idea that if you just follow the rules, then you will get the kind of life you want is rampant in Christian books. It's everywhere in Christian books, and it's really, it's almost, it, well, it, if, if it didn't make me want to weep, it would be comical to read books. And I don't care. I'm talking some of the biggest Christian authors, right, um, who will write these books and you'll read them and you'll be like, you know, all the stories are of people who followed the author's advice and their life turned out wonderful. And all these people had a terrible life and then they listened to what the author had to say and they really believed it and now their life is better. And it's like, are you kidding me? Are you serious? That you really are telling people that if they just follow the right rules, then automatically their life works out better. What about Job? <laughs> what about, I mean, there are so many examples contrary that sort of show the lie to that in the Bible, but people don't read the Bible. They read these books 
And then they just read other books written by people who only read these books. And there's sort of all this kind of common sort of sense, this is how Christianity works, this is how God works, and it has nothing to do with the Bible. Example. Um, a few years ago, this guy called me. I told you about this guy. He called me up because he'd written this book, Choosing God's Best. And I should have known by the title that it was a terrible book. And he's a really nice guy. The irony is that a friend of mine, um, this guy Derek Webb, he had, uh, knew this guy and had come out of a bad relationship. And this guy was really kind to him. So he wrote a little blurb on the back of the book without reading the book. And, um, and so I was like, Derek, what are you, are you kidding? Did you read this book? Like, this is a terrible book. You would hate this book if you read this book. Um, and that, I think, was probably about the last book blurb he ever did. But, they, you know, there's this, this sense, like, the guy was a really nice guy, okay? But he just, he's just kind of naive about the Bible. Now, he may be a really gifted counselor. I don't know, okay? You might even know him. I don't know. But his book is not helpful. Um, I asked him, I said, now, choosing God's best, like, what, is that, what does that mean? Tell me about that. And he said, you know, it's basically a book about courtship and about the problem with dating and how, you know, dating is this secular cultural institution. We need to get rid of it. And if we do, then things will be, you know, much better. Um, and I said, well, tell me, like, how do you even know God's best? And he said, basically, I think, like, you, you know, uh, you pray in your heart and God gives you peace. And then, you know, that's the decision you need to make. And I said, really? Like, because when I read the Bible, like, I, I, I feel like what the Bible tell, says is that living by faith feels like death. And there was just, like, silence on the other end of the phone. Like, he didn't know how to respond. I was like, are you kidding me? Like, you know, the, there is a way that seems right to a man but in the end, leads to death. That's the Bible. That's Proverbs. And yet all these Christian people think that they just pray and do whatever their heart tells them to do. Really? Really? Now, I, I know you, you may be looking at your life saying, well, that's kind of what I've done to this point, and it's worked out pretty well. Well, God's been merciful to you. Or maybe he's actually said you can't handle like anything tough because you need to grow up and you're still a little baby. Um, I don't know. But all I can say is, here's, listen to this book. See if this, this rings true for you. Um, these are some quotes from his book and, and some thoughts on this. Dating creates more problems than it solves. Broken hearts, illegitimate children, abortions, sexually transmitted diseases, and feelings of guilt or shame that can last a lifetime. Is dating the problem or is sin the problem? Like you, you, you think courtship will magically deliver you from any of those potential problems? Or not dating? Hmm. Uh, as serious as these consequences are, and this is even worse. If that wasn't bad enough, this next line is worse. As serious as these consequences are, the solution for them is simple. Biblical courtship instead of dating. Follow the rules and it's fine, Right? All you have to do is follow the rules, court rather than date, and your life will be worry-free. Did you know that? If you bought this book, that's what you would know. He goes on to say that while courtship may seem difficult, it's been, quote, practiced for thousands of years. Dating, by comparison, is less than a century old. Well, so is the computer he used to write the book. That's a logical fallacy. It's primitivism, the idea that if it's old, it's automatically better. Um, that's not as common in some ways. It's more common in fundamentalist Christian circles. Uh, more common in our day is to think that if, old, you know, if it was believed in the olden times, then it must not be right. Because we usually have more of a prejudice of the modern over 
the old, but he has kind of the opposite one. But neither one of them proves that it's right or wrong or true. Um, he goes on, he goes, dating is little more than an experimental blip. As an experiment, though, it has been a total failure. With God's help, it's a failure you can avoid from now on. It sounds like he's selling like toothpaste or something. Um, if you are one of those singles who's experienced the brokenness of a failed dating or marriage relationship, you will find healing in the courtship process this book describes. Really? Really? I thought healing came from the gospel, not the courtship process. And honestly, it literally is page 87 before he quotes the very first scripture in this book. Page 87. And then he misuses the story of Ruth to say it's courtship, um, when in fact it's not. Um, he, and then he goes on. Here, last, last little quote from him. Courtship offers us a way to meet our needs legitimately without getting out of God's will, without missing God's planned blessing, without causing ourselves pain and grief, without causing hurt to other people, and without causing confusion in our lives. I don't think the courtship you know, process can really promise all that. And honestly, when you read the Bible, it seems that God kind of likes to use confusion. It's one of his greatest tools. I don't know if you've ever seen a map of Israel wandering around in the desert for 40 years. Some Bibles, study Bibles in the back will have a map that kind of traces that out. Remember, God's people at this point were led by a pillar of cloud and fire. Like, not just by feelings of peace in their heart. Like, they literally had God um, appearing as a pillar of fire saying, come, follow me. And the, the, the route goes this way and that way. It double backs on itself this way and that way. It is absolutely not the shortest point from here to here. It's not a straight line at all. And, you know, if you look at Deuteronomy 8, um, there's a place where God says, look, here's why I did this. He, said, he says, basically, look, I led you all these, all these things. I caused you to hunger so that I could feed you. So that I could teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the Lord. God says, I needed to 40 years of your confusion to try to get this into your thick skull and your cold, stony hearts. That you were made to depend on me and live upon me rather than upon yourself. God likes confusion. He likes confusion. Um, I, I would say along with this worshiping of simple formulas, the simpleton approach, is a disturbing lack of grace. And again, listen to this. You, you guys might even like this quote that I'm going to read. It's from a very popular book, Henry Blackaby's book, Experiencing God. But I want to just point out something to you that you might not have noticed. Um, this guy um, in the book, Choosing God's Best, likes uh, Henry Blackaby's Experiencing God uh, book, which I don't like in a lot of ways, but listen to this quote. This is a quote from Henry Blackaby. We adjust our lives to God so that he can do through us what he wants to do. God is not our servant to make adjustments to our plans. We are his servants, and we adjust our lives to what he is about to do. The back end of that isn't terrible, but the beginning of that is horrendous theology. Let's, let's read that again. We adjust our lives to God so that he can do through us what he wants to do. Listen, if you want a theology or you want an understanding of God that will drive you to absolute despair, then that's a good one. That God can do nothing unless you let him. That God can only work if you adjust your life to him because otherwise he's thwarted and cosmically forever frustrated. 
Let me just tell you, read a little bit of the Bible, right? Nowhere does the Bible teach us that God is frustrated by human beings. You know, the Jews wanted to make Jesus king by force. And God's plan did not come to a grinding halt at that point. Jesus got accomplished what he intended to accomplish. And if you think that God can't break through your unbelief and that God can't overrule your sin and your foolishness, oh my goodness, you're going to go crazy trying to live as a Christian who thinks that God is that weak and impotent. It may, again, it sounds spiritual, but it's horrendous theology. All I can say is it's a good thing that Jesus didn't have to wait until, um, you know, people changed their minds before he did what he wanted to do. I mean, Peter told him, to, you don't need to go to the cross. You don't need to go there and suffer and die. Messiah doesn't have to do that. You remember what, Peter, you know, what Jesus said to him? Get behind me, Satan. And he went to the cross. Gospel of Luke says, he set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. He would not be deterred. Whether suffering, pain, the pleading of his friends, nothing stopped him from doing what he wanted to do. So the good news for you tonight is that God is not thwarted by your unbelief. And he's not up there waiting for you to get on board before he can bless you or do what he wants to do in your life. Okay? And it also means, you know, that if you don't have dates, it's not just because you're not in God's perfect center of his will, a phrase that nowhere appears in the Bible. And again, is really, I think, really puts people in bondage to think about, well, I just need to stay right in the center of God's will. Like if I get off of it at all, then he can't do anything that he wants to do with me and I become part of his plan B world. That's not the God of the Bible. Um, again, I talked about you know, rules versus principles. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I don't need to say any more about that. I, the last point I'd say about the, the reason these Christian books are so unhelpful is they're driven by fear. They're driven by fear. You can see that in his. It's the idea that you tell people, and again, this is so popular. So many of you guys probably grew up in churches and youth ministries and youth groups where basically fear is the motivation to live the Christian life. And I understand, you know, it seems like something helpful to resort to, especially when you've got kids and, you know, you got high school kids, you know. But fear is a sub-Christian motivation. I'm not saying it won't cause you to do some things and not do others, but ultimately, if, if you would truly live the Christian life, it needs to be lived in response to the God of grace. It's done out of love or it's not really Christian. Um, there, there's you know, a story sometimes that's, that's told. Uh, I think I first heard Tim Keller tell the story about the king um, who was in his throne room. It's probably an apocryphal story, but it's a good story. Um, one day this guy comes in and basically says to him um, that, you know, it's this, this poor farmer, and he gives him a lamb, and the king says, you know, what a, what a stupendous gift. Um, here, gr I'm going to grant you this kingdom because I'm just so overwhelmed with your gift. And the guy leaves. And there's this other kind of, you know, minor 
you know, noble who's, Lynn, who's sitting there in the throne room and hears this whole thing and he thinks to himself, man, so for a sheep, this guy got a kingdom. I wonder what I'm going to get for a fine stallion. The next day he brings a fine stallion to the king, presents it to him. And the king says, wonderful, thank you very much. And the guy's like, uh, that's it? Like yesterday you gave this guy a kingdom for a sheep. Today I bring you a stallion and that's it? And the king says, the farmer gave me the sheep, but you gave yourself the stallion. Like if you're living the Christian life out of fear or hope of rewards from God, you're using him as a means to an end. The way you're living is not for him and out of love for him and who he is and what he's done. All right. So there, there you go. Let's, let's, let's hit a couple other of these things and then have some questions. And I can go through some of these things pretty quick. Um, I, I've said this already. Again, you know, friendship is really the key. Now, this is difficult in our day and age because, you know, in the postmodern world, people consider friends more important and more valuable and more stable than lovers. And so it's a big challenge and a big risk to go from we're friends, but if I tell this girl that I like her as more than friends, then she might freak out and we won't be friends anymore. And I don't know if I could handle that, right? So I don't mean to make light of this issue, but the reality is um, friendship really is the basis for marriage. Um, and, and, And it's so important that we understand that. See, most people, like they walk into a room and they eliminate 90% of the people just because of what they look like. Rather than saying, who in this room could I be friends with? We think, who in this room could I date? And those are the people I'm going to talk to. And, you know, all I can say is, guys, if you only ever talk to pretty girls, the pretty girls notice that you never talk to the other girls. And they all wonder, what's he going to be like when I'm not so pretty anymore? Right? Like, people notice those sorts of things, right? I, I remember, you know, one time when I was in college, man, northern girls don't mind telling you what they think. <laughs> and I'm from the north, right? So I remember one time there was a group of us um, in this college group that I was part of. We went to a, a Baltimore baseball game, I remember. We're walking across the, the parking lot in the stadium, and, like, I think all of the guys were kind of like a pack of guys, maybe 10 guys in this group, and about 20 yards behind us are, are the girls, right? Um, Typical college group, right? This really cute girl walked by, and every guy turned. And one of those girls behind us that was our friend reamed us up one side and down the other and said, you guys, do you realize what that does to us? Because the Bible tells us to not put our hope in, you know, braided hair and gold jewelry and outward appearance, but to cultivate a meek and quiet spirit, to cultivate this inner character. And yet, when we see you guys, all you seem to care about is what people look like. Do you realize how that hurts us? That was deeply convicting for me. Because I never was thinking about what I was doing, how it was sort of tearing down Christian sisters that I knew. But it was. Like, you know, the guys and girls, the way you relate to one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord, and I'm talking to those of you that feel like, yeah, I'm part of this Christian community, you have a responsibility. God has placed within your hands power to help or to hurt in what people think really matters. You can contribute to it, to the right understanding, or you can be breaking it down. 
And it, and it really does matter. And we're all weak in this area. And, and we need each other's help, right? I talked about this already, talking through weirdness. Um, so many times, relationships that could go somewhere flounder because people think they've communicated by their actions, and they really haven't. That's for, so for me as a campus minister, that's so frustrating. I'm like, why don't you guys just talk about this? Because I'll talk to one person, and I'll talk to this person. I'm like, they're not talking. They're not communicating. And they think they're communicating. I'll say, they'll, we'll talk about how they, two people had a talk, and I'll talk to one and talk to the other. I'm like, I don't think they really had a talk at all. Or if they did, they sure didn't hear each other. Um, so often we don't like to talk about stuff, especially uncomfortable stuff. We don't like to put our heart out there at all. We don't like to risk. Um, but honestly, like, there's no way, guys, for you to ask a girl out and her not know that you're interested. I don't care if it's lunch. I don't care if it's coffee. Like, it's really difficult to be so nonchalant, but we always try to do that, right? Like, I want to ask this person out, but if she says no, I want to be able to pretend that it didn't really matter to me anyway. And, you know, it doesn't work. I don't think it works. You think it works? I don't know. No, it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, of course, right. So, you know, you just got it. Now, you know, so, I, I don't know, maybe that's a revelation to you. But it's, it's, it's worth talking through weirdness. Now, that doesn't mean that the first time you go out, you sit down and have a big define the relationship talk. Um, but I think how you, how you come to that decision has to be based on caring and serving the other person. I think so often people have these defi- dating the relation- or define the relationship talks because they, they just can't live with the tension. Or well, I'll just tell you my story. I'll tell you this little bit of my story, right? So I was the only single pastor at a big church where the pastor, the senior pastor used to regularly um, mention that I was still single from the pulpit and encourage the congregation to pray for me to get a wife. Um, it was not a pleasant experience. But one of the things that that did is it made it very much a pressure cooker kind of situation if I finally did get up the nerve after like three or four months of thinking about it to ask out Wendy um, there was no way that I could do that in a subtle way without everybody wanting to ask her what's going on. And I made it even worse probably because the first thing I took her to was like a, a little concert that a bunch of our friends were playing and all of our friend group were there. And we walk in together and everybody's like, what? And then the very next day I took her to a wedding shower with the same kind of group. All right, so that was, like there was nothing subtle about that really. Um, but then, I, you know, on, on, I guess it was Monday night, right? Monday night, um, I took her out. We went out to talk. And I told her, um, and some of my friends told me not to do this. Um, but I felt like I have put her into a situation where everybody is going to ask her, what are Kevin's intentions? And I didn't want her to have to say, I don't know. I wanted her to have an answer that came from me. I felt like because I'd been so fearful and hadn't dated for 33 years, that I had brought her into that, like it or not. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, she was going to bear some of the consequences of that. It was going to put extra pressure on her and on our relationship. And there was no avoiding it. So I decided that I needed to just tell her. And she had no idea, like, she'd never thought about dating me. But I think it was helpful to say, you know, basically my intentions, that's what I told her, are to pursue you until you tell me to stop. And I asked her if she was okay with that. I didn't ask her, do you like me too? 
No, I was going to pursue her because I wanted to pursue her, right? Now, that doesn't always work because I know a guy that thought that was good advice and he did that with the girl that he married and he really didn't know her at all before he engaged her to marry. And they've had a lot of, lot of hard things, you know, because of that. I knew her somewhat enough to where I felt like that wasn't just a crazy thing to say to her. I knew her character. I knew her. But there was something, what I realized, I didn't intend this, but what I realized is that kind of pursuit helped her not feel like she was being auditioned. See, the hard, one of the hardest things about dating is, like, you're supposed to be honest and be real, but you know at the same time, like, you're being auditioned. It's this totally weird thing. Um, and I found, like, again, I think the Lord was just sweet to us in this regard that I wasn't, this wasn't some, like, strategy that I thought through. I just felt like I needed to serve her in that way. It ended up having this kind of result. I do think guys and girls, you don't, girls, guys and gals, you just need to know that it's weird. Dating is a weird thing because it, it's like you're trying to get to know somebody, but you're also trying to put on a good front. Like Chris Rock says, when you meet me, you don't meet me, you meet my representative. And that's often what happens in dating. And one of the things that can help break that down a little bit is if the guy says, I'm gonna, I, I am going to pursue you because I've gotten to know you and uh, I'm not going to sort of only ask you out if I feel like I'm getting positive, you know, feedback every minute, you know, minute by minute. I don't know. Um, I, I also would say this, that if you, if you do break up, man, the, again, this is an interesting thing. Breakups and dating relationships affect the whole community. It's never just about two people. And that's hard. And there may be times when you can't be around the rest of that community. But my plea and hope is that you can deal with it in a mature way to where it doesn't devastate all your other friends and rip your whole community apart. And sometimes you might need help. I've had a lot of those really uncomfortable kinds of post-breakup conversations with people helping them kind of sort out things and needing to apologize and whatnot, and I'm always up for doing that, so is my wife. Um, but, uh, you know, that's just, that's just, you know, reality. Um, I do think, though, sometimes, you know, we can have, like, too many, like, constantly having these define the relationship talks, which really are about control and, and out of fear. Because, honestly, the quickest way to fall out of love with somebody is to look at the relationship and talk about the relationship all the time, really, instead of looking at the person and saying, I want to get to know this person. The best way to get to understand a person is to hear them tell stories about where they've come from. So, you know, you may think you want to go do like these big romantic dates, but you may like go out to a movie and dinner and you may not really actually get to talk that much. Or if you do, it's like so high pressured that you're not really hearing each other's stories and getting to know one another. Um, getting to know one another, especially at early stages, but even more so in the later stages, you've got to hear one another's stories, right? And, um, and so often, like, we get to a certain point where we're so insecure in the relationship that we're always talking about it, thinking that if we're, you know, talking about it all the time, it'll make it more secure and there's less of a chance that we'll get hurt. But usually it ends up, it usually ends up you're moving, you're kind of moving away from one another when you're just talking about the relationship, it's not a relationship. It's another person, you know, and you need to you think about it that way and, and um, rather than some little project that you're trying to nurture. You think about it that way and you're done. You really are. Um,
What else would I say? Um, turn the page over. A couple, couple more things, and then, I, then we'll give you some questions here. Um, dating non-Christians. Did I talk about this a little bit already? The Bible says clearly that you're not to marry somebody who's not a Christian. And I would say, if you think that that just sounds crazy, um, I would say that if you really understand Christianity, what it's about, then you know that it really is the deepest core thing about who you are. If somebody is really a Christian, the way the Bible understands being a Christian, it is at the core of everything you are. And if you're dating or marrying somebody who doesn't understand that and can never understand that and doesn't want to be part of that, like what you're saying is I'm going to be in this relationship with somebody who's never going to know the deepest part of what makes me me. And you might have amazing chemistry and compatibility at all these levels, which is fine, but at some point you're going to reach a point where that person can never have all of you. So besides the fact the Bible says it's not something you should be doing, that there, it, it, practically it, it actually makes sense. Um, and and I, I, my advice would be be careful about that. It's one thing in junior high to like go to like a dance with somebody who's not a Christian. Like it probably doesn't matter that much. But when you start getting into college and you get out of college, you know, even casual dating takes on more significance potentially. And, and you need to be careful about that. I mean, I, it's amazing to me still, like, people that I, I think are strong Christians will tell me, you know, that they went out with somebody. I'm like, really? You know, are they a Christian? It's like, well, I don't know. You know, we haven't really talked about it. It's like, really? I don't know. That, that, I don't think that's wise at this stage in your life. Um, but, I'll, I, again, I don't want to call it sin because the Bible doesn't say anything about dating. So I'm not going to say that dating a non-Christian is sin. But marrying a non-Christian is if you're a Christian. Okay? Um, well, it might not be okay, but it's what the Bible says. That's what I meant. Um, let me say this last thing. When, when, uh, is it appropriate to break up with somebody because they've become an idol or a distraction in your life? Um, I think, you know, I, I remember a guy telling me that one time, and it just really struck me as fascinating. He said that basically, and I understood what he was saying, that basically, like, he was so head and heels, you know, just flipped out over this girl that, like, it was all he could think about. And I thought, you know, well, this is what I said to him. What do you do when your wife becomes an idol? Because the Bible doesn't say that you get to divorce somebody because they become so precious to you. The way to deal with idolatry or putting people in the place of God is to restore your understanding that they are a gift from God rather than God in God's place. Does, does that make sense? In other words, thankfulness is really the way, it's really the antidote to, to putting people on a pedestal and making idols out of them, saying that you can give me everything that I need for life. That, that's idolatry. And you shouldn't worship a person like that. But if you find your heart beginning to think that about somebody, the, the problem is, is, is not one that's going to be fixed just by you cutting that person out of your life. Because there's still something that you think is deficient in God. And this person 
was able to usurp his place, not just because you treated this person wrongly, but because you treated God wrongly. And you thought less of God than he really is. And just getting rid of this person doesn't fix this problem, right? As a matter of fact, wrestling with your care for this person might actually help you come to a greater love for God. Let me, let me just stop there. And um, what other questions? I mean, there's so many questions. I didn't even cover all the ones I had on this little sheet. But yeah, all right, labels, boyfriend, girlfriend, Facebook official, dating. Yeah, I do think that people in our day and age really get kind of anal and obsessive about you know, define it exactly right. And it's almost like, again, I think sometimes it comes out of fear and then it's a way of trying to control, making sure we're both at the same place at the same time, little baby steps to make sure that I won't get too far ahead of the other person and then potentially get hurt. So I think if it's coming from that place of fear, you know, that, that, needs, to be, that needs to be looked at. Um, just refusing to, to label it um, doesn't necessarily deal with your fear. Um, as a matter of fact, refusing to label it may make you fall into breaking the let your yes be yes and your no be no. Because sometimes you just need to call a spade a spade. You're dating. You're like, you're spending time together that's prearranged. That's dating. You know, I don't care. You can call it something else. Um, but why are you afraid to call it that? Why? Um, now, on the other hand, I think one of the reasons that we're hesitant to call it dating or boyfriend-girlfriend, is because those terms seem to imply a kind of ownership and responsibility. But I would say that they don't biblically. Like biblically, if you're dating somebody or they're your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you just don't have any ownership over them. Hopefully, naturally, both of you want to spend time together, but you don't have the right to tell somebody who you're not engaged to or you're not married to, that you have to be exclusive to me, right? And so I think that there's a lot of these um, kind, of, kind of, I think that gets tied into it too. So the labels seem to imply certain responsibilities and certain privileges, which probably they shouldn't. So, but there, I do think that's one of the reasons people are cautious about the label. Um, and I think that they should probably break the link between the label and the implied, you know, privileges and responsibilities, which may not be appropriate no matter how you label it. Does that, does that make sense? In other words, saying because you're my, okay, I call you my boyfriend. Okay. What does that mean? You call him your boyfriend. Does that mean like, you know, what does that mean? Does that mean that we're sleeping together now? Um, obviously that, you know, from a Christian viewpoint, that would not be appropriate, whether your boyfriend's or not. Yes, it would. Yeah. And um, at, at some level, you know, you can just have this loose, undefined hanging out. And I, I feel like, you know, if one of those people feels like, like this, this loose, undefined hanging out needs to be defined, then you have all the freedom in the world to do it. I don't think you have to wait for the guy to do it. I think sometimes the girl might say, you know what, I'm not comfortable with this loose, undefined hanging out. I want to know what you're thinking. And if he freaks out over that, probably sooner than later for you to find that out. And maybe he's not mature enough to really be in that kind of relationship. Uh, I know. So, there's, again, there's no rule. Yeah. Does that help you? Yeah, it does. Okay. 
Yes, okay. So I, I mentioned this last week, so then I forgot. To, no, no, it's no problem, but I should have mentioned it again. Courtship, the way, the way I understand it, you know, in some of the literature, that involves two things. It involves an intentionality rather than we're just kind of hanging out. What, one of the things I said that is important for you to understand where I'm coming from in this is that the purpose of dating is not necessarily to be married. It's to be blessed and to be a blessing. And so courtship tends to have more intentionality to it. We are doing this to decide if we want to get married. And it usually involves the parents or parent surrogates if, there's a, if the parents aren't you know, in the picture or can't be in the picture. So those two. Now, I think that having some kind of intentionality about why you're doing what you're doing and being able to talk about that is usually a good thing, right? So I'm not opposed to that. And I'm not opposed to involving your parents and getting their advice. They may actually have wisdom. Um, but courtship, especially when it's held up as the biblical model, I think is a problem. Because I think actually what happens sometimes is then people are like, well, we're courting. Therefore, you know, we can just sort of kind of relax because this, the, the system itself is going to take care of things. Or I've seen some people, I, I've known definitely like girls, for instance, that didn't want to say no to a guy. And so it was like, you've got to get my dad's permission. And it was really just a cop out. It was manipulation. Um, and and I, I don't think that's helpful or helps build up honest Christian community. Yeah. And I've also known parents that really did not want to trust their kids at all. And though they imposed, you know, courtship for that reason, both of those are like fear driving this system. It doesn't have to be, but often I think it's sort of used rather than having honest conversations and facing fear in a better way. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, girls asking guys out. Yeah, again, I, I mean, you could probably guess what I'm going to say. Does the Bible say that it's sin? Um, no. Um, will it freak some people out? Probably. Um, that being said, there's no reason you can't do it, but you should be prepared for it being misinterpreted potentially. But I, I guess what I'm thinking of when I would say somebody like, there's no reason you should feel compelled that like you're good friends with a guy and you feel like, there's no good reason why you guys shouldn't go out. Like, I, for myself, my wife would probably disagree with me, but I, like, gosh, somebody should say something, you know? I, I think, and I would say, like, if you think the role of the Christian woman is to be this nice, sweet little girl who never talks, um, gosh, please get past that um, before you start dating, you know, and certainly before you get married. Like if you go into a marriage with this idea that I never get to talk, even when like I really know better than this dope, you know, what needs to happen, like that would be really unhelpful because God has called you to be one flesh, to be a partnership, right? So um, that, that'd be my view. Now, that being said, I'm from the North and that happens sometimes. Um, but again, I would say, and this is, this is something Tim Keller mentions, I think is so helpful. Like when you come together, you have to look at your tradition, not as, as the master, but as wisdom. So if your culture, like you're from the South, and your culture is a girl would never do that, should never do that, um, well, that's making a law where the Bible is not made a law. Um, but there may be wisdom why that would be maybe interpreted wrong, or maybe there's reasons that you think that that's not a good idea, um, I'll get you in a sec. Hold on, but um, 
I think you look at your culture as wisdom so that you don't have to reinvent the wheel completely, but you also say it's, it's wisdom that may not be the best decision in every case. You know? Um, so.